0: Sermon today continues this series I'm doing on faith and practice, and I want to talk about how to read and study the Bible. Um, there is a handout for this sermon, should have been in your bulletin, um, so you could fill in. some of you are really like when I do this, and you could fill in the blanks, and if that's you, you know who you are. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, the Bible and how to read the Bible. Uh, here today. Let me start with our scripture from Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. What I want to do today is just give you a crash course in how to read and study your Bible. How do you open this document up? What is it? How do you approach it? How do you read it? And so we're just jumping right in. The Bible, the the word Bible just means book from the Greek Biblion. 66 books, actually. It's more like a library than a book in and of itself. 27 New Testament books, 39 Old Testament books, 1,189 chapters, 31,173 verses, and a whole bunch of words. Written over about a 1,500 year period. Okay, So written over a very long stretch of time, even by conservative estimates. Written by at least around 40 authors. A lot of books we don't know who the author was. A lot of books or sort of combination books where it seems like there were multiple authors that took part. Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew, and Hebrew doesn't have vowels. Okay, So there's some confusing times sometimes when we're trying to figure out exactly what the Hebrew word is. New Testament is written primarily in Greek which didn't have spaces or capital lowercase letters. In fact, neither Hebrew nor Greek in ancient times had spaces between the words. A little confusing sometimes to read those documents and know what letters go with what letters, in fact. Earliest copies don't have punctuation, and when you get your Bible, you're very oriented towards chapter and verse. My professor, Len Sweet, calls it versitis. We love our verses. I learned this verse and I learned this verse, but that is a very foreign template for the Bible. Okay, we don't get chapters in the Bible till about twelve, the year twelve hundred, and verses till about fifteen fifty. Okay, less than five hundred years, less than a quarter of the Bible's time with us as Christians has it had verses. I right, mean, think about that. Um, so, whenever you read the Bible, you got to understand that you, you got to look past the verses and the chapters. Okay, you got to look past those things. So the question for us is: Oh, there's my face. What is the Bible? Okay, the Bible is an ancient library. It's very old. We shouldn't be surprised then that it's sometimes a little hard to read. Okay, two thousand years ago, nineteen hundred years ago, the latest, the, the the newest books of that were written, and sometimes a little hard to read. Library of Christians and Jews from different contexts and viewpoints. Okay, from different contexts and viewpoints. That should tell you something right there, too. They live at different times and different places, and they have different ideas. And so sometimes the Bible is in discussion with itself. Sometimes the Bible is arguing with itself. Well, maybe that's not exactly the way things happened and sort of looking back. Okay, different contexts, different viewpoints that wrote down their understanding of who God is and what God is doing in the world. So we have it's It's a catalog. It's a library of all these Christians and Jews trying to say, all right, who is God, and who are we, and how does this world work? And over a 1,500-year period, that, that shifts a little bit, and that changes. I used the metaphor last week that the Bible is like a telescope. Okay? And you can imagine that, that early on, the, the Jewish people only saw so much of God and over time, that got revealed to them more and more, and they got a better, kind of like the telescope, scoots out and adjusts, and they, and they start to learn more about God. And then when Jesus comes along, we get sort of even more about God. So it happens over time. It's important to realize, I think, that God did not write the Bible. That has never been the Christian belief. That God, that there, other faiths believe that about their scriptures, but not ours. We believe God inspired authors that God was a part of the process, but that the authors were also writing. And so you get Romans, that's Paul, and it sounds like Paul. and John sounds like John. And yet, as those authors write, God still is speaking through it. So I think we take seriously this long sentence. I put it in caps because I think it's important to think about. God inspired specific authors to write specific words phrases and discourses in a specific order to a specific culture at a specific time okay jesus when he was born when he became flesh he wasn't american right he was jewish and he's not jewish like jewish people now he was jewish like the first century he came when he became flesh and dwelt among us. He was at a certain time and place. and spoke a certain language. And the Bible does that same thing. And if you're going to take the Bible seriously, and I think you should, you need to take seriously where it came from. And how it was written. And why it was written the way it was. Why are certain words there? If you are an author of the Bible, if God is inspiring you to write, then, then you could pick any word. Why do you pick that word for love? There's multiple words for love. Why use that word? If we take seriously that it's God's inspired word, then we ought to take seriously it's God's inspired words. That those words are put in that order for those people at that time. Okay. So, we assume that about the Bible. Then there's two important elements for studying God's word. This comes from my professor, Dr. Lenski. He had this interesting experience where both of his kids simultaneously were studying birds, okay? One of them was at college at George Fox University, and a biology professor from neighboring Washington State University came and taught for a day about birds, and they dissected birds, and they learned about different types of birds, and classifications of birds, and how birds' bodies were made up. At the same time, Len's son, who was in high school, went out, there up in the San Juan Islands, and he went out with a local naturalist. Okay, so, got a, not a PhD. Not a PhD. And they looked at birds in the wild. And they said, okay, here's this kind of bird. Here you can hear their sound. And they went to different uh, environments and sort of watched different birds in those environments. And then they both were together. The, the daughter had come home for the weekend from college or for a break or something, and they both talked about what they learned about birds. And what my professor assumed was, who, who do you think would have gotten the better learning about birds? The daughter, right? You're learning from a Ph.D. at college level. But what he found was that they both learned a lot about birds. They both learned a lot about birds. And in fact, very interestingly, they both learned very different things about birds, Okay, there's two ways to learn about birds. A bird in the pan and a bird in the bush. Okay, bird in the pan is when you scientifically dissect a bird. You open it up, you see what's in there, you see how it works. Scientifically deconstruct what a bird is. On the other side is a bird in the bush. And that is when you just observe it living, alive, moving around, building its nest, calling out to other birds. Okay? If you really want to know birds, you've got to understand both a bird in the pan and a bird in the bush. Because there's certain knowledge you're not going to get in the other way of studying birds. Everybody with me? The Bible is the same way. In the Bible, there's bird in the pan and there's bird in the bush. Okay? Sometimes you just need to read the Bible as if it's a bird in the bush. Just read it and think about it, and dwell on it, and let it speak to you, let God speak through those words. And sometimes you've got to study it. Sometimes you've got to dive in, you've got to wrestle, you've got to dissect, you've got to look up certain words. There's certain things that you only learn from the Bible if you read it devotionally, and if you just expect God to speak through it. But there's other things you will never learn from the Bible that way because it was written 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. And you'll never figure out that when they said that word, they meant this Kind of concept. You want to understand the history. You've got to do a little bit of work. So it is both bird in the pan and bird in the bush. Okay? So approach number one. This is really the, a, a good way, I think, to describe a bird in the bush kind of approach to the Bible. It's called Lectio Divina. It, it's just sort of this cycle where you read, you think about or meditate on what you read, You pray, and when it says here pray, you pray what you're reading. And then you contemplate, you think about it. The the metaphor that's often used by the church followers is a very old way of reading. It's like chewing. Okay, you read it, you take a bite. And you think about it, you chew on it. And you repeat it, you you, you kind of take the phrases. And then you start to pray the text. Pray the words that God's given you in the Bible. And when you do that, the the old way of saying it is that you extract the flavor. You extract the flavor of the meaning of the text as you you chew on it and as you savor it. And then really kind of meditating is like swallowing it or, or resting, kind of letting it settle in you. And I love that way of talking about the Bible. It's a great thing for you to do just to sit and read and expect that God will meet you in your reading. Okay, it's a great daily practice just to open your Bible and chew on the words a little bit. Repeat it again and again. And even though you may not understand everything that's going on, it would be amazed how often the Holy Spirit will speak to you as you chew. Okay, to do this though, you need uh, tool number one. And tool number one is a good translation. I could talk about this for a long time. Allow me just to say it very briefly. Okay, there's all kinds of translations of the Bible. You go to the mall bookstore, you're going to find all kinds so the Bible we want Amazon, same thing. Okay? What, the trouble with the translation is, the, the hard part about translating is kind of how you're going to make decisions. Okay? So when Paul says the flesh, when Paul says the word the flesh, does he mean like your body? Or does he mean your sinful nature? And so if I'm going to translate that word into English, do I want to say flesh and risk? That's really what we would call word for word flesh. Okay, That's exactly what Paul says, flesh. And if I say that, I risk people thinking that it means flesh when actually he's talking about a spiritual thing called a sinful nature. Or do I go what we would call thought for thought? And that would be like saying sinful nature. Paul said flesh, but he meant sinful nature, so, so maybe I'll write sinful nature so that they can understand. And Bible translations... Uh, range on that. You got really word for word. You get really thought for thought. The, the problem with word for word, by the way, is it gets kind of clunky. Okay, if you try to stick too much to the Greek and the Hebrew, in English it just doesn't sound as smooth. If you go more for thought for thought, um, then you get a much more readable translation. It's one of the best things you can do, by the way, is read both. Get yourself a translation that's much more uh, like a living Bible, the message, which is really a paraphrase, New Living Translation, and then get yourself an English Standard Version, um, a uh, New American Standard Bible, and then, and then NIV is kind of the typical middle of the road. Um, but you need a readable, good Bible translation. I'm happy to talk with you and suggest those. ESV is my favorite. Um, I don't mind a word. For, I grew up on the King James and the New King James, so clunky English doesn't bother me with a Bible. I like the ESV. It's just kind of what I do. In the pews is an RSV, which is very, very close to the ESV. Um, ESV is just a kind of an update of that. Okay. But get, get a, a couple of translations, but definitely get one that's readable. And if you're new to the Bible, the New Living Translation or the NIV are really good ones. Okay. They're, they're sort of middle of the road to thought to thought. Um, those are good ones to start with. Okay. Approach number two. You still need a good Bible translation, but it's what I call the mountain of study, of Bible study. Okay, most of the time when we when we try to get into the Bible, we want to start with application. You just read the Bible and you say, "Well, what does this mean to me?" I think most of the time that's a mistake. I mean, the Holy Spirit can guide you in that. You can chew on the text, you can lectio divina, which really does work. But a lot of times, what you really need to do is read and sort of build up to the meaning. And I think in this. If, if you can't tell, I think application is the shadow of the mountain. If you climb the mountain and really understand the meaning of a text, then um, the application to your life is a lot of times easy. So, base camp is really reading, just reading the text. The literal context just means understanding the words and what's written around it. Okay, so, so what is going on in before and after. And I put that first on the mountain because it's a little bit easier, I think, to, to do. Because all you've got to do is read before and after and sort of read wider, you can get an understanding. The historical context says, well, what was going on in history when this was written or when this was ha- happening? Because sometimes they're different. If you read the Gospels, they're writing uh, anywhere from 30 to 60 years after Jesus. So there's when Jesus said the words, and there's also. Um, When they wrote the words, and those are two different contexts. And sometimes they're a little bit at play and you need to know that. And then you're trying to get to the meaning. And the meaning of the text really has to be, what was the meaning for the original readers? Does that make sense to everybody? If you read a text and you say, well, God is clearly, the meaning of this text is clearly that I'm supposed to move to New York City. Nobody in the first century read it that way. So you better explain to us why you're moving to New York City, right? And none of them would have read that meaning. Okay, so let me, let me fly through this a little bit. Read. First of all, think of it as the words of God and not just the word of God. Okay? We say this is the word of God, but, but what if we said it was the words of God? That God chose these particular words and we take seriously why are these words there? Read repetitively. It's amazing when you read it over and over and over again, sometimes, what you'll notice in a passage. Treat it as a movie. So, play it out in your head. What would it look like? What would it smell like? What would it be like to have been in that uh, context? Here's your guiding questions Okay, what details stand out? And why would the writer choose to write this way? Why did they choose this word? Why did they choose this order? So let's go back to our Hebrews passage. And let me read a little bit more of the Hebrew passage. Okay. So I'm in Hebrews chapter 4 starting in verse 1. Therefore, for while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You confused already? Maybe. For we have believed; we who have believed entered that, tr- that rest. And he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundations of the world. For he was somewhere... Spoken on the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." Oh, okay, that's long, confusing, there's a lot of Bible quotes in there, but, but let's just make a couple observations. First of all, there's a lot of Old Testament quotes, and there's several therefores. Okay? If you read observantly, the authors give you clues, right? If they're saying therefore, 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 what do you think you've got? You've got an argument. You've got a line of reasoning. And this one started with, therefore, so I already know. i got to go back and read what's ahead if I want to understand what they're saying here. It's obviously something to do with rest and the struggle with rest. And it's referencing that that maybe, um, maybe the people of Israel in the Old Testament struggled and didn't get the rest God gave them because of their disobedience. But here's the big deal for this passage. When I read at the beginning about the idea of the Word of God, you may have assumed this was talking about the Bible. In fact, we quote this all the time in reference to the Bible. And yet, in the context, it really has... It's not talking about the Bible. talking about something else. And so we've got to get behind that and think about it. So that's what we would call the literal context then. So if I... If I'm reading now, I know I've got to read a little bit before. I know I've got to read a little bit after. I've got to understand what's going on in the larger discussion. Imagine trying to understand a letter with only one sentence. You might not have a clue about the rest of the letter. You've got to understand the letter. You've got to understand where this sentence fits for it to make sense. So a couple things. Consider where you are in the Bible. Okay? Remember the telescope model. Okay? If you're in the Old Testament, you've got to understand where you are you're in the prophets and the, you know that they're really wrestling with exile if you're after Jesus then you've got a different kind of discussion going on where are you in the Bible consider the genre of the book okay if I was listening to a country song and I re- heard a phrase that said that someone broke my heart my achy breaking heart right I wouldn't assume a cardiologist was involved in the process right because I understand country song is talking about broken hearts using a metaphor. doesn't necessarily mean the cardiologist was... But, but at the same time, it doesn't make it not true, right? We've all had broken hearts that didn't involve going to a doctor. So I've got to understand the genre, the type of literature I'm reading. If I'm reading a story, guess what? In a story, you read fast. You want to get the whole idea of the story. If you're reading Paul and he's making an argument, you've got to follow along a little slower and piece together the argument. Get the immediate context, then the larger context. What's going on right here, and then what's going on further. And then the guiding question, why does this passage or text belong here and nowhere else? Why does this have to go here, and it couldn't go in the next chapter, and it couldn't go in the book prior to this one? Why does it fit like a puzzle piece right where it is? tool to this is a good study Bible. Good study bible give you a really good intro to the book give you comments at the bottom i love the esv study bible the macarthur study bible is good too you need a study go out this week and get yourself a study bible something that'll give you some of these clues let's think about our context for a moment in our book okay it's we're in the book of hebrews we don't actually know who wrote hebrews We know from one of the lines that he knew Timothy, so he's probably a contemporary of Timothy and Paul. uh, But it doesn't seem to sound like Paul and doesn't claim to be Paul, so I think it's probably not Paul. He's obviously quoting a lot of Old Testament, and so if I had a study Bible, I could go back and look at what Old Testament passages um, that he's looking at. It's, It's kind of a letter, but more of an argument. And the argument is really written to Hebrews. Two Jews, the author is trying to argue that Jesus is the better, the next step in the, Christian, in, in the faith. So Jesus is the better temple. He's the better scripture. He's the better sacrifice. He's the great high priest. This is the argument the Hebrews makes over and over again. So he's looking back and talking about God's promise for rest and the Sabbath and saying, you know, Israel could never find rest because they were always disobedient. But we have been given rest And we better figure out how to live into that rest. So we're getting a little bit more on the passage. The historical context then is the history of its writing. So remember there's often two contexts. The context of the event and the context of the writing. Okay, This is the author of Hebrews writing in the New Testament and he's referencing Joshua. You've got to understand Joshua if you want to understand what's going on in Hebrews. Okay, You've got to understand Jesus in between them. Okay, so there's often multiple contexts going on. You've got to pay attention to names, places, and events. We often skip those, don't we? Okay, you're reading it like there was this guy and this guy, and they went to this place. But a lot of times, those are details. Okay, why would he go to that city? Is there something important about that city in the past? Okay, guiding questions. Why did someone write this down, and why, does it, why did it endure Why did somebody choose to write this down and why did did it endure? Tool number three, then, is a Bible dictionary. A lot of good study Bibles have a little bit of one in the background. But a Bible dictionary, you can get at the mall for six, eight bucks. Uh, I don't even have one that I really recommend. Just something that you can say, okay, well, what's the name of this place? And I can look up that place. What's the name of this person? I can look up that person and get just a little quick background on the person. So our passage. Okay, in the book of Hebrews, we know that he's a contemporary of Timothy, so he's after Jesus. He's also talking about the temple, and he's writing to Jews, so he's probably before 70 AD. In 70 AD, uh, the history tells us that the temple was destroyed and the Jews were sort of disbarred, and there's no Israel anymore, and the fact that the author doesn't mention that, and just assumes the temple means he's, got it, he, he's almost got it in writing before that. And he's making this argument to Jews saying, you've got to believe in this Jesus guy. Now, here's where the context gets very interesting. It's the phrase, Word of God. When we hear Word of God, we automatically think the Bible. But Word of God is used throughout the Old Testament. And it means way more than the Bible. It means God's speech. And that's not any little concept. It means that God, how does God create the world in Genesis? He speaks. He calls into existence. There's this understanding in the Old Testament that God is always creating and He's always sustaining the world through His speech. In fact, Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You don't, you're not sustained by bread. You're sustained by the word of God, God's speech, God's work in your life. And so when Hebrews says word of God, he doesn't just mean the Bible. He's talking about God's living, active speaking and working in your life to create and sustain. And what he's saying is, okay, let's, let's, get, to, let's get to the meaning here. Okay. We're using, first of all, scripture to interpret scripture. So I want to know if it says Word of God, where else is Word of God used, right? Where am I going to go back and look at Word of God in the Old Testament? I might even, for Word of God, need to look at John 1, right? In the beginning was the Word. Okay? Meaning always needs to start with the meaning that would have fit the original audience. So, the Jewish people are reading this, and they're not thinking about the Word of God in the Bible. Okay, they're thinking about the word of God as this living, speaking thing that happens in the world and happens in your life. And what they're saying is, hey, you want rest? And how many of us really want rest and we can't find it? You want rest? You want peace? You want hope? You've got to find that in, in God's word, in God speaking in your life. You've got to listen to that. You've got to hear that because that can dissect you. That can cut you up. That can, that can analyze your, um, uh, your motives and your thoughts and your actions. You're not going to escape God's word. So you're better to not disobey it, but instead lean into it. That's, that's what Hebrews is saying. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that really hard to apply to your life? <laughs> no. When you understand it in its real context, you think, how many of us really would love rest? Anybody have trouble resting? Have trouble sleeping? Having trouble being at peace because we're always worried about stuff, worried about stuff, worried about stuff? And, and the author of Hebrews says, yeah, but, but God is right there speaking, ready to sustain, ready to work in your life, and you're going to miss it. And he even goes on, if you keep reading in Hebrews, which you should do later this week, to say that Jesus is this one speaking. Because he's the great high priest. He's the temple. He's the sacrifice. So the mean, the application is the shadow of the mountain. Okay? Once you understand what the Bible is talking about, it's really not that hard to understand how it applies to our life. So the question is, what claim does this passage have for our life, for my life? And here's my understanding for you today. Jump in. I believe God has lots of stuff to say to you. And the speech that God has for you, the words that God has for you, can change your life, can give you a rest and a peace that you have never known, and that we are all struggling for. And I'm telling you, there's a reason why we call the Bible the Word of God. It's because it is one of the primary ways that God speaks to us. And I know it's hard. It's hard to understand the Bible. I know it's tricky. There's a lot of words. You've got to read this 2,000 to 3,000-year-old document. It takes work. It takes effort. And I'm telling you it's worth it. And I'm telling you it gets easier. So jump in. Dive in for yourself. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.